Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. It's Tuesday, so we don't have a weekend full of news to catch up on, but there still, there still is a lot going on today, John. It's surprising to me, you know, maybe it's because summer's over, everybody's back in town, and, you know, we've got stuff going on in Capitol Hill. The Justice Department seems to be either imploding or exploding. I'm not really sure which yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. And and we're we're just uh, weeks away from the midterm elections on top of it all. Right. Yes. Which, like, they sort of sneak up on you after you spend months and months and months <laughs> talking and speculating about them. Yeah. <laughs> So we have, I mean, especially exciting when you get to talk about uh, reports of sabotage. And we'll talk about what exactly is going on with the Nord Stream pipeline today. We are going to talk about referendum voting in Moscow. We will get into some of these reports of Russian men trying to leave the country to avoid being called up to serve. We are going to talk about China's slowing economic growth and how the country's Belt and Road Initiative might be reshaped for the future. We are going to ask, this is going to be kind of fun. Um, We're going to ask whether, like, personal insults could actually cause serious trouble for the U.S. relationship with South Korea uh, because, you know, not sure quite how long policy can sort of follow in the choppy waters of uh, some of these insults and and snubs that yeah. we've been seeing. And um, just last week, uh, the the South Korean president was caught on a hot mic call, calling the U.S. Congress a bunch of idiots. Yeah, I mean, that's that's just the latest. And that was after he was snubbed uh, by Joe Biden on the sidelines of the UNGA, where he uh, it seems like Yoon Suk-yeol thought that he was going to get an actual sit down with Joe Biden. And instead, he got mm-hmm. sort of a drive by high five that he didn't think was uh, particularly respectful, I yeah. think. So we'll yeah. talk about that. We've got the beginning of this sedition trial for the leader of the Oath Keepers. Uh, We've got Hurricane Ian, which you mentioned yesterday, which is still making its slow way toward the United States and hit Cuba. Uh, We are going to talk about how fashion contributes to uh, environmental degradation and climate change. There's a whole bunch. And we also have, and I think this is, I I wanted to get this in because it's a little bit maybe of good news, which I like, but also represents a sort of frustrating um, habit of this administration and particularly the media. Um, So we had all these reports about Joe Biden's meeting yesterday of the White House Competition Council, where he announced a a bunch of changes to uh, what he called junk fees, taking on junk fees. Um, He said uh, that the council is uh, pushing banks to get rid of overdraft fees and late fees for credit cards, hotel processing fees, termination fees by cell phone and internet providers. He touted the work of the council for uh, saying three quarters of, of America's 20 largest banks are getting rid of, of these overdraft fees, which is great. Um, yeah, great. He announced... This, I think, is also very important and something I'd like to get into in more detail if it comes to pass. These steps toward competition in the meat and poultry industries, which is something that I think was really highlighted during the height of the pandemic and lockdowns when you saw 
uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of animals slaughtered to absolutely mm-hmm. no end because our meat processing industry is so hyper concentrated and hyper efficient that any kind of deviation in schedule simply can't be accommodated by the machines that we use to process the carcasses of these animals. And so you have this incredible amount of waste that is generated because, you know, because of course there, there is nothing but profit for these industries and also because they are, they are the ones doing everything. So if we really did see, um, a move to break up some of these huge uh, meat processing monopolies. I think that would be a fantastic move. I agree with you. And, you know, I think that that added competition would um, would improve safety and quality and maybe even uh, quality of life for some of the animals. Because Absolutely. people want... Yeah, they they want what's best, what's best for everybody. And what's best for everybody is a product that is safe and clean and reliable and uh, and sustainably uh, uh, cultivated. Mm -hmm. He also so this is this is the competition council that seems to cover every it it runs the gamut. Right. So you have like uh, increasing competition in the meat industry and also don't do overdraft fees, and now these new proposed rules uh, about how airlines have to present fees that are associated with buying air tickets. So there's this new proposed rule that says, you know, when you display an airfare, that needs to show every potential fee. You can't, you know, after tickets are purchased, spring on these sort of family seating fees and stuff that could be really expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's great, but this is a proposed rule. And the the end of one of the stories about this meeting notes that the transportation department is in the midst of a 90-day review process for a rule about um, getting refunds for flight cancellations and flight delays. But you remember, John, when this proposed rule was announced, it was announced like it had been done. And I think you can put some of the blame for that on the way it was worded by the White House press secretary. But this is a a problem in the way this is presented, like a lot of this stuff is meaningful for people's lives. You know, not ha- not getting uh, charged overdraft fees, it, you know, that that impacts people. Not getting charged, you know, fees yeah. for ending cell phone contracts or whatever else. All this stuff is actually, you know, it sounds like small potatoes, but it it is great. It affects people's lives. It's, it's something that you That's feel right. immediately. And uh, it, it generates these really positive headlines. And yet in all of these stories, it is very difficult to pick out what is something that has actually been done and what is a nice thing that's been proposed? And it's tricky, right? I mean, of course, they, uh, the White House has an interest in, in uh, proposing these rules and are going to get them positive attention and do, do good things for people. Uh, uh, but what seems to happen, and especially I think now, as you say, with the midterms coming, th- there's all of this churn about all of these proposals and then, you know, you have to just sort of sit around and wait and see if they actually are going to come to pass, right? And so it's one thing to say, right. we're taking steps now to do X, Y, or Z. We're taking steps to increase competition in the meat uh, processing industry. We're taking steps to make sure airlines drop their fees. Okay, well, taking a step is one thing, and enacting a policy and putting your signature on it and making it law is is another. And so, yes. you know, again, the, the gulf between those two things can be can be pretty big. But it's worth calling this out, at, you know, or, or highlighting it, because it would be really great. These things would affect people very directly and also, uh, and not incidentally, uh, get Biden and his party some goodwill. 
That's right. That's right. And it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we want to get straight into our next guest, but I'm not sure if we have him on the line yet. I also wanted to point out, John, you know, we talked a bunch about um, the Italian elections yesterday. Yep. And I find the way that they're being reported very interesting. So we have some In the more, U.S. press or in the European press? In the U.S. press. Because I think uh-huh. the European press is not as excited. But you have today from the New York Times, this is an opinion piece, Georgia Maloney is extreme, but she's no tyrant. And Oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, the article's point, I guess, is that Italy is so economically dependent on Europe that any attempt to chart a more, you know, quote-unquote, independent course like Hungary would topple the economy. Which is not really the same as saying uh, Georgia Maloney and her politics are not something to be very concerned about, you know? And I do have to, I mean, I have to think that all of this sort of, okay, yeah, she's bad, but she's not that bad. It has to be about NATO. It has to be about the fact that this is, you know, this is someone to to put it kindly has uh, uh, neo-fascist roots, at least, in her political career. Right. you know, she's our side when it comes to the sort of geopolitics of the moment. And so it, you know, that's fine. The The other one we have from the Washington Post is uh, fears about Italy's Georgia Maloney are overblown, but don't <sighs> underestimate her. And here's this. This is wild to me. So um, it, it talks about what her appeal was. Uh, it talks about her, you know, stance on immigration or whatever. And then it has this paragraph that says Maloney came to prominence when she proclaimed in 2019 that I am a woman, I am a mother, I am Italian, I am a Christian. This social conservatism isn't rooted in the past. Rather, it is rooted in a sense that Italy's past is worthy of respect and can form the foundation for its future. I'm sorry. Exactly the same thing could be said by exactly the same type of politician in Florida. And you you wouldn't be saying this is rooted, not rooted in the past. This is like it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's just the most no, obvious. No, it's irrelevant where it's rooted. You know, the, what what I keep uh, focusing on is the fact that she has uh, she, she has complimented the leadership of Benito Mussolini mm-hmm. in a country where Mussolini was was so hated for the the number of Italians that he was responsible for killing, that he was murdered and strung up naked and upside down on a garage door. Mm-hmm. And that's the politician that she decides to emulate. So it's like, yeah, the, the whole point of this is uh, her party wants to respect Italy's national traditions and restore the country's economic freedoms. But that somehow is forward thinking. But when a politician in the United States says it, uh, it's it's right. backward and terrifying. Like, which is right. it? Could we ha- just could we have some kind of principle here? And again, I'm not saying she's the worst monster in the world, but like, I think, you know, I think it's probably fair to give her the Orban treatment. Um Right. John, I do know we have our next guest and we have a lot to uh, to to chew through in this first hour. So do you want to just skip this break and and go right to our next conversation? Yeah, let's do that, because, you know, it's it really is one of those days where there's so much news that we just have to uh, we have to get into it. Mm. So why don't we why don't we skip that break? Um, We are going to uh, talk to Mark Sloboda about some 
interesting, important, developing stories. Three offshore lines on the Nord Stream gas pipeline system, and I mean both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, were severely damaged overnight in what energy officials are calling an unprecedented event. Sweden and Denmark have declared states of emergency, and both Russian and German government officials said that the damage was likely caused by sabotage. Both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 were heavily damaged. Meanwhile, the governments of Georgia and Kazakhstan said that tens of thousands of military-age Russians are crossing their borders every day to avoid Russia's new military call-up. The two countries don't require visas for Russian citizens. Kazakh officials said that 98,000 Russians have entered their country since Tuesday of last week, a week ago today. Western media reports say that President Putin, for his part, has been influenced by conservative military leaders and advisors around him who are pushing for an expansion of the conflict. We are going to get to the bottom of that with our next guest. Mark Sloboda joins us from Moscow. He is a well-known foreign affairs and military analyst. Welcome back, Mark. John, uh, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. So glad to have you. So glad that you're available with all of this breaking news, Mark. Let's begin with Nord Stream. This sabotage is going to be a huge problem for Western Europe. A German spokesman said it was impossible to calculate the potential damage to European economies. So I guess the question is, qui bono? Who benefits? What do you think we're looking at here? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that there's really any question about who benefits uh, or who who did it. Um, if I can quote Victoria Newland on January 28th, if Russia invades Ukraine one way or another, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Uh, February 7th, uh, Joe Biden, if Russia invades Ukraine, we will end Nord Stream 2. Journalists mm -hmm. asks, but how will you do it if the project is controlled by Germany? Biden responds, I promise you we will be able to do it. Um, and I will draw your attention. Uh, so all of the all three Nord Stream pipelines, there were two from Nord, two Nord Stream 1 pipelines and one Nord Stream 2, all three pipelines simultaneously uh, w within a few hours of each other, uh, all um, erupted with leaks, all in the vicinity of Bornholm Island off the coast of Denmark. Mm -hmm. um, and seismologists um, in uh, the area, uh, I, I believe in, in both Sweden and Denmark, uh, registered disturbances, uh, which they say were very likely explosions around that time. Uh -huh. And if I can quote to you from the Dutch media, I'm sorry, the Danish media, uh, on the April 7th of this year, Danish Prime Minister rebutes a Russian ambassador over Bornholm concerns. The, uh, the Russian ambassador uh, expressed Russian discomfort that American troops were being positioned on this island. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, and she said it was basically none of the Russians' business. Uh, I think Russia clearly saw the threat where both Nord Stream 2 pipelines – came very close at a very shallow uh, degree of right. water 
uh, compared to you know the, the 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 rest of the pipeline at this point, we all know that the United States um, has screamed from the beginning and done everything they could with sanctions and everything else to stop Nord Stream uh, two from being completed. They already had enough objections about Nord Stream one. Uh, you know we've got the definitive statements here. We certainly know that if anyone has the capability to destroy three pipelines pipelines all right at the seabed uh within a short period of time um okay let's be frank uh, certainly the ukrainians might have the intent but they don't have the capability um i um you know there are other countries that might have been involved it seems almost certainly that denmark was involved in this denmark is you know as far as eu client states go one of the biggest lick spittles of them all in fact oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) Numerous times, Denmark has been caught helping the U.S. spy on other EU countries. Um, So, um, yeah. Less uh, than 12 months uh, ago. uh, Yes, yes. So um, that was, um, you know, um, Poland and the U.K. also are, you know, certain to have uh, been uh, possibilities for being in the loop in this. And, uh, of course, now – Neither pipeline was currently pumping gas to Germany. Right. Like Nord Stream 2 was never brought online, and Nord Stream 1 um, has been halted, according to the Russian government, uh, due to uh, problems with uh, the turbine pumps um, that were under contract that could not be uh, repaired because of Western sanctions, although it seems very likely here that Russia was um, uh, throttling uh, the gas intentionally as a you know uh, attempt to um, return fire um, with the West you know the entirety of the EU countries having weaponized their economies and their control of of the global economic and financial infrastructure against Russia Russia responds with its economic leverage uh, over uh, Europe which is primarily not only but but primarily energy so um, yes. but. Both of those pipelines were full all, – all three – were full of gas because they need to be uh, full of gas even if it's not flowing um, to uh, you know maintain the correct pressure for the um, uh, integrity of the pipelines. And these are serious pipelines, right? This is not uh, – this is uh, concrete-covered you know, steel of very significant um, – uh, uh, construction and and uh, width. Um, yes, this it's not an easy uh, uh, target. Um, this is obviously not an accident. I mean, uh, we've even heard from you know uh, German economists uh, affiliated with the government that they can't see any conceivable um, explanation at this point uh, other uh, than sabotage. And I mean, we yes. can use the word sabotage, but let's be frank: if someone was blowing up U.S. pipelines, it would be called terrorism. Terrorism, um, correct? Yeah, and the. The ecological terrorism would not be inappropriate because, of course, um, this is creating a hazard because this gas may continue to leak out for days, um, uh, up to a week. Um, they've already had to warn ships and planes to get out of the area. It's an ignition hazard, and the amount of, of, of um, natural gas methane 
that is going to enter the atmosphere is going to cause a considerable spike uh, for uh, carbon emissions uh, for this year as a result of this. And all of this is gas that could have gone to heating European consumers. Um, well, that, that's kind of my winter. next question. Yeah. If I can interrupt you for a moment, in the in the short term and the medium term, we really don't know where Europe is going to find the gas necessary to keep the continent warm, or at least Western Europe warm during the winter. Right now, as the weather uh, begins changing, so what happens? Yeah, the Russians. I don't, well, I. I shouldn't say you know, because you do know. Uh, but the Russians have been willing to sell the gas. It's the West, uh, under the insistence of the United States, that the European Union not purchase the gas from Russia. So now what? Now there's been this sabotage. You can't use Nord Stream 1 or Nord Stream 2 for delivery. Where do they get their heating oil and their and their natural gas? Yeah. Um, so obviously they're going to have severe problems. I mean, uh, we've heard from, uh, you know, the Western press, we've heard from foreign policy magazines saying you have no idea how bad the uh, energy crisis in the U.S. is and big headlines. Um, we've we've had uh, lots of reports about industry, uh, uh, you know, particularly energy intensive industries, uh, metals, uh, steel and uh, zinc manufacture, aluminum. But also things that you wouldn't normally think of, like uh, cardboard, toilet paper. All the major toilet right. paper manufacturers in Germany are shutting down. They might actually need to hoard toilet paper really soon. But we also, so I mean, a lot of these industries are industries that can't really, I mean, you can't shut down steel plants, right? If you shut them down, they're dead. <laughs> they yes. need, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you can't just uh, start them up, you know, shut them down and start them up again. That's not the way they work. Uh, you know, they've got to constantly operate at some level uh, because they suffer structural damage if, 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 if you turn, you know, off. The, the, the processes. Um, right. And we've heard from the Wall Street Journal in the last week that there's a huge flow of uh, manufacturers in Europe that are suddenly moving to the United States. Uh, so um, America stands to benefit from tens of thousands, if not more jobs and billions in dollars of investment fleeing the EU and moving to the US. But just in case you thought it was only um, uh, the Europeans that are suffering as a result of this, um, the American media has started reporting about a natural gas shortage in the United States. And you're like, natural how can gas. that be? Yes, yes, natural gas. Yeah, the same thing that the Germans are probably. Natural gas shortage in the United States. Why? Because all of the fracking gas that's being pumped is now being booked for Europe, where they're paying considerably more for it than uh -huh. the Americans are. Uh -huh. So the capitalist motive kicks in, and they're sending huge amounts of LNG to Europe, which is still only a fraction of what is made up from the Russian gas. But now the American consumers are also uh, uh, faced uh, with uh, going to be faced with rising uh, costs. Um, you know. Uh, 
the usage of natural gas in the U.S. isn't as high as it is in Europe. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're looking we at actually, uh, problems here as well. We spoke about this, I think, last week. It was a bunch of the, I think, the governors or leaders of a bunch of states in New England who had written a letter to send to the Biden administration to say, hey, please, uh, please don't forget about us. We are the ones who use the natural gas to heat our yes. homes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Foretold. So, I mean, uh, there's, this is what you do when you're trying to uh, take a huge amount of natural of, of these vital commodities out of the global market and saying we're just not going to use that or we won't let you use that some i mean we, we live in a world with finite supplies of these things and it's i mean someone is going to buy it it's just the disruption is going to raise prices for everyone everywhere and a big part of this is simply that the EU is going to become uh, uh, economically, globally economically uncompetitive um, because to a very large extent, they they miscalculated how important for decades of, of European prosperity, a steady supply of relatively cheap, reliable Russian energy has been. Um, and I'm I mean, I'm quite sure that Olaf Scholz will go down in history as the chancellor who, who, you know, destroyed Germany. I mean, that it, it won't it won't destroy Germany, of course, but I mean, we're we're talking a severe economic recession and with no end in sight to it, and it's only going to get worse, you know, unless unless terms come, uh, you know, are made in the year, you know, this year, next year, the year after. Um, there there is no way it's going to cause a huge economic damage to Germany. I believe that overall they will scramble together enough energy to. To, to, to heat, uh, you know, most of their citizens. I mean, I know they've been constructing public places for people to come and get warm yeah, at. And get but warm. Ec economically, yeah. right? That's where the, the big damage is going to be. Industry that is uh, very energy intensive is, is just going to either shut down or leave the country. Mark, we've seen multiple, multiple reports saying that support for President Putin remains high in Russia, but that support for some of the more conservative elements of the military leadership does not. Uh, many Russians are blaming. This is what we're reading. Uh, I, where, I, I was curious. I said, "Where are you reading this?" <laughs> you in the U.S. press, <laughs> not in the yeah, Russian okay. press. It's a backhanded uh, compliment, believe me. What they're yeah. saying is that that uh, somebody's got to be blamed for this military call-up and, and the response to it. And they're blaming the military leadership. Uh, we've got reports of Russians fleeing to neighboring, neighboring countries at about 10,000 people a day in Kazakhstan, in Georgia. Some are going to Armenia. Uh, what What's happening over there? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, let's uh, address the the issue of of um, this. I I think it's a little bit more of projection. I think it's the Western media people who don't like the more conservative uh, hawks and and shall we say um, right. uh, military leaders in Russia because I don't see any indication of that whatsoever. Right. Um, I think there is a general understanding that there are mistakes. That have been made, uh, you know, with the intervention, the special military operation. Um, a lot of those simply due to the self political self limitations that came on that, and they didn't come from the generals; they came from the Kremlin, right? Uh -huh, and there uh -huh. has been 
particularly since um, you know uh, the Russian military was forced to withdraw from Kharkov uh, because you know the new the new counteroffensive strategy of attacking everywhere at once, they couldn't continue the offensive in Donbas and protect all the territory at once because they were limited to 150,000 troops total, plus you know 40 to 50,000 East Ukrainians fighting on their side. Just couldn't defend everywhere at once. They saw that yeah. coming. They started withdrawing troops from Kharkov. They pulled out um, it, but it was humiliating. It was a huge PR victory. It was largely punching air, right? The, the Kiev forces lost more troops moving in because they exposed them to Russian aviation and long-range artillery, but they took a bunch of, of villages, right? And, um, right? and that's really what it was because of the area. But, it, you know, um, there is a sense of betrayal of these people there who were then exposed to the neo-Nazi filtration uh, of these settlements, hunting for collaborators and traders, you know, meaning anyone who even took food from the Russians and and. and so forth. Um, so there was a lot of, 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 of upset about that, right? And I do not think that the, the support levels for uh, the, the Russian military intervention are in the 80%, right? And um, yeah. there is general understanding by those paying attention that the, the main problems uh, with it were these political restrictions. So there wasn't any sentiment against the generals or the war hawks. That's actually where most of the opprobrium was coming from. And it was one of those that it's not directed against Putin personally, but simply right. pressuring him to make the decision to call up the reserves, something by which I've been calling for on your show since February. So, uh, but, um, you know, because I was Perhaps one of those, you know, uh, you could say, uh, who have been uh, speaking like that. Now Putin has done that. Um, and I think that, you know, you, that sense of discomfort is going to go away. Now, there are going to be more people who, you know, uh, because, you know, their own, uh, uh, you know, family members are being called up. Uh, as the reserves are called up in, in Russia, um, that is going to, you know, uh, affect some people's lives. And there are people leaving Russia in relatively large numbers, right? Now, um, one of the things to keep in mind is there is always a constant amount of traffic back and forth between Russia and these countries. So you may see numbers like 100,000 uh, uh, crossed or 80,000, 98,000 crossed the border into Kazakhstan in the last week. And you're like, well, what's the background? Oh, that's like 60,000. OK, so 30,000 extra. Right, right, left, right. So all in total, what I think you're going to see is around 150,000 people uh, left the country uh, in the last week, uh, counting men and women and, and children above the the, the background normal traffic in and out of uh, the country. And if you take a look, you'll see that that is a similar number that left the country when Russia launched the intervention. And there was widespread belief that a mobilization would be launched, like a total mobilization, right? Like a draft, right? right. Um, and what you're seeing right now, uh, during that time, a lot of these people went to Georgia and Kazakhstan and uh, Armenia, and they discovered actually after a few months that life wasn't all it was cracked up to be there, and there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities, and they weren't particularly welcome, and most of them kind of slunked back. 
Now right. you're seeing the same people leave again. But what's important to keep in mind is that the vast majority of these people are not people who had military service. They're not people who are being called up. They're people who are afraid that they could be called up. And this is where the PSYOP operation comes in, presenting it that, oh, the Russian is calling up not 300,000 people, but a million people or 10 million people or 2 billion people or, you know, whatever ridiculous numbers the propagandists are coming up with to, you know, to cause, uh, you know, social and political disruption and that everyone is going to be drafted, not just those who have military service in the 10 years and combat experience, which, which is what is being called up. And I I think you'll find that very a very small number um, proportionally of the people who fled are people who actually um, are, are getting reserves. Of course, I mean that's always going to happen. It's a war. You, you sure. remember when the, the, when the U.S. invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, um, they called up the reserves, just like Russia yeah. is doing now, and. Um, in the very first initial phase of that, there were some 5,500 deserters who fled the United States and yeah. went and to seek asylum they, in they, Canada, in, in Europe, right? And they stayed and, there in, until Jimmy Carter finally Carter. offered them a, a, a pardon. I, and I'm no, sorry no, that I'm we're talking out of more time recently, Iraq and Afghanistan, not Vietnam. Same thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank yes, you, Mark yes. Sloboda. We were joined by Mark Sloboda, who is in Moscow. He is a foreign affairs and military analyst. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned and we'll come right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou, right here with Michelle Witte. Voting continues in Donetsk and Luhansk as residents decide whether they want to become a part of Russia. The vote is expected to be overwhelmingly in favor of joining Russia as independent republics. The Russian Duma would then have to approve the accession, which would then go to President Putin for his signature. We're joined from Moscow by Sputnik journalist Wyatt Reed. Our man on the ground. Welcome back, Wyatt. Hey, John. Thanks for having me again. Good to have you. Wyatt, you've been in Kherson and you're now in Moscow. Tell us what the mood is like surrounding these referendums. I would describe the general reaction to the passage of these referendums. I think at this point, we uh, it's safe to say these uh, referendums have passed. Uh, the, the reaction is more of relief than I would say of outright uh, jubilation or something like that. Uh, people uh, have a sense that this is uh, going to allow the Russian military in some sense to take the gloves off uh, in their fight uh, against the regime in Kiev. I spoke with an official at the embassy of the Donetsk People's Republic. They have an embassy here in Moscow. Uh -huh. um, and where people were out voting today. And uh, one official told me that uh, the referendums, the passage of the re referendums is likely to, uh, to lead to uh, the elevation of the, this special military operation to an anti-terrorist operation. 
Um, and that, uh, that is kind of the classification that uh, military operations in Syria uh, have, have that classification. Um, it was the kind of classification that uh, the, the Chechen uh, operations uh, were given. And it could also potentially lead to uh, Kiev being labeled a, a terrorist state if it uh, launches attacks on those regions. Um, that's according to the, yeah. uh, the official that I spoke with. So uh, certainly um, there's a sense that this will lead uh, to uh, uh, heightened hostilities that uh, the reaction coming from the Ukrainians is likely to spark uh, a much more significant reaction uh, from Russia in the future going forward. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I, I think it, the timing with the 300,000 Reserve, it's being called up, um, you know, not a mistake either. All of this is happening at the same time. I don't think it's sure. a coincidence. I think uh, people, uh, you know, things are, are getting ready to get uh, a little heavier on the front lines. I want to ask you uh, a question that I just asked Mark Sloboda a moment ago. I'm, I'm really curious as to the mood in, in Moscow regarding this recent call-up of, of military or to military service. We're seeing these reports of Russians leaving the country. They're going to Kazakhstan and to Georgia and Armenia. I saw that there was an opening at, uh, at the border with Estonia. Um, and I've heard that there that there that many people are blaming the military establishment. What are you hearing? What are people saying as you walk around Moscow and and speak with sort of the average Russian? Yeah, I think Mark Mark summed it up pretty well. Um, this to me represents more of a kind of a propaganda effort. Uh, obviously, there are certainly a, a number I would say relatively small in comparison to the overall Russian population. A number of people with the uh, money and the desire to to leave Russia right now. Um, we've, we've, you have seen some photos on social media of that. Um, interestingly, though, I will note, you know, when I came uh, to Moscow, which was after this, uh, this announcement that 300,000 reservists would be called up, uh, my flight from Istanbul to Moscow was also full. Right. So it's not just the flights that are uh -huh. coming out of Moscow that are full. There are full flights there as well. Um, you certainly are not going to see mainstream media publishing photos of those flights anytime soon, I wouldn't imagine. But uh, to me, it's 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 a bit of a propaganda uh, campaign and an effort to depict the pushback in Russia to President Putin as as greater than I think it really is. Right. And I apologize in advance. Um, we're we're pressed for time. But I really want to ask you about this announcement yesterday that the Russian government had granted citizenship to uh, to Ed Snowden. Um, I, 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 I left for joy when I read this article. The coverage here in the U.S. was pretty widespread and almost universally negative. Uh, like I said, my personal opinion is that this was a wonderful thing to do. Are Russians saying anything about this? Does the average Russian just care uh, care or not care? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is an issue that probably um, more Westerners are, are more focused on. I think Russians are, are more focused on the conflict itself. Um, you know, I, sure. We certainly have the sense that everywhere in the world that, you know, we're kind of the center of attention as Americans. 
Um, but that's not really the case here, uh, at, as far as I've, I can tell. That, um, but I mean, generally speaking, more broadly, I think average Russians are pretty appreciative of, of what Edward Snowden did. Um, interpersonally, you know, I, I've heard praise as well. Although I've also seen some kind of jokes about, you know, when is when is Edward gonna get, Snowden gonna get called up for some military service as well? Um, you know, I, I think there are some patriotic Russians uh, who, uh, you know, who want to see everybody putting it out on the line. And uh, right, you know, for me personally, I tend to view it the way that you do. I think uh, I think it's a great thing. I think uh, that man has done. Uh, more for our country than almost anyone else in terms of our ability to know what's actually happening, the reality of the way we're governed. Uh, and I, I couldn't be happier for him. Agreed. Well, thanks for joining us, Wyatt Reed. Wyatt is in Moscow, and he is a Sputnik News journalist. You're tuned to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have a lot more coming up. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to... Wow, we have a whole bunch of stories that are going to take us all over East Asia. And so I, I apologize in advance to our wonderful guest for uh, dragging him back and forth across the continent. But there is there's a lot happening and a lot that's caught my eye and a lot that he has been writing about that I want to get into. Uh, so I think it's going to be a fun conversation, even if we have to uh, shift gears pretty often. We're joined now by KJ No. He's a scholar, educator and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific KJ, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be with you. So we've got China's economic outlook. We're going to talk about some changes to the Belt and Road program. A little later, I want to ask about the, the U.S. relationship with South Korea. We've got Kamala Harris in uh, in Japan and in South Korea. And uh, to, to end it all, I want to ask about some interesting analysis of, of Japan's apparently new foreign policy approach. But let's start with China and I. Uh, two stories that I think are probably related, right? The first is the World Bank cutting China's growth forecast and simultaneously reports that China is considering changes to its Belt and Road program. Uh, China's very strict COVID-19 protocols were always going to come at some economic cost. And so to me, it seems like this, this slowdown in growth is the result. Uh, it was probably pretty predictable. What is interesting to me is that China's slowing growth is getting very similar treatment to like actual economic contractions in the U.S. And, and Europe. And so it seems like the standards for economic management seem to be pretty different for the two regions. Uh, these reports that China is also uh, apparently revisiting the terms of its massive global Belt and Road lending program, uh, a process that is being described in The Wall Street Journal as indicative of a failure of the 10-year-old program, uh, also seems to me to be pretty natural. Uh, Failure seems to be that China is newly open to working with other partners on the program, to renegotiating debt, uh, advocating for more risk controls. So, uh, you know, with those two stories kind of side by side, talk to us about China's economic state right now. 
what that means for the rest of the world and uh, what these reforms to the Belt and Road Program could be. Yes. Well, I think the first thing to note is who they included and who they did not include. Uh, You can see that uh, China's uh, economic growth has uh, shrunk slightly to 3.3%. It was originally forecasted to about 5%. It's gone down to 3.3%. They don't tell you that that is double that of Japan's expected growth growth rate or a full percentage point over South Korea's. Or that, you know, it is uh, still, you know, nearly two and a half times that of the U.S. growth rate. So there's a real kind of attempt to frame things in the most uh, negative light possible. But there are other factors we can look at. Simply that China's life expectancy has already uh, uh, exceeded that of the United States. Uh, The average uh, Chinese adult uh, has uh, greater wealth than uh, your average adult in the European Union. And that's with a much, much lower GDP. And so I think this is a real attempt to cast, uh, you know, pessimism on on China's economic model, which the Wall Street Journal has, you know, uh, dedicated itself to for years and years. But the, the simple fact is, as you point out, you know, China is not capitalist, or at least not capitalist, in the way that uh, Western capitalist societies are. It it will value human life and human safety over profit. And so, yes, there was a slowdown. There was a turndown in the economy, partly related to uh, its COVID policy, but also related to a global slowdown uh, of the world economy. And China is uh, affected by this but it's still uh, head and shoulders uh, above the rest of the world. It certainly surpasses the global average in terms of its expected economic growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And talk to us about the, uh, the Belt and Road Program and how it might look in the future. If you know, it, The reports about these proposed changes are always, of course, attributed to like, people familiar with the process. But it seems reasonable that after about a decade, China would be looking at, uh, you know, how this program has performed and what they want it to look like in the future? Well, you know, the Belt and Road has been growing by leaps and bounds. And as any project grows, it's going to start hitting a growth curve. And that's what we're starting to see with the BRI. You know, for over a decade, you know, a trillion dollars expended, it was kicking off and it was doing extraordinary things. Now, once again, with the rise in interest rates, the appreciation of the dollar, and the weakening of the global economy, uh, the Belt and Road is running into some uh, financing issues. Uh, that said, China has just canceled the debt of 17 African nations. So that gives you a sense of how China approaches it. It's not about profit. It's about coexistence, mutual development, and uh, and it's also you know a strong diplomatic effort on the part of China. So, you know, I think these uh, allegations or these reports of Belt and Road failure, I think, are greatly uh, exaggerated. Um, I think that China is retrenching a little bit. You know, the Belt and Road is a case-by-case situation in certain countries, for example, in Pakistan, in areas of Pakistan, it is actually run into terrorism, which 
uh, I think we can ask uh, where the genesis of this terrorism and sabotage comes from. And in other countries, it's run into economic, uh, you know, uh, headwinds. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, this is a long-term project and the Chinese will continue to develop and continue to work on it. It's part of a larger global vision. Can I ask you about some tensions in in this reporting? As you say, uh, China recently canceled the debt of 17 countries. But one of the things that this journal article asserts is that China has been unwilling to accept losses when it comes to this Belt and Road program and, and, you know, will just sort of extend the terms of loans or whatever, you know. Uh, how do how do those two things coexist? Are are these loans that you're talking about not related to BRI? Um, how should how should we understand this? No, they are BRI mm-hmm. loans, and China will either outright cancel loans or it will extend them or uh, renegotiate them. I think this is a lot of uh, additional uh, sour grapes that China is not going whole hog. Uh, you know, IMF structural reform, uh, neoliberal, mm-hmm. and would be used to attack it. It's a very different approach to development. It's the whole idea of win-win mutual development and really thinking about the long term. This is long-term planning. It's not short, short-term profit gathering. Mm-hmm. Let's also turn to, uh, uh, on the topic of China, uh, Meta, this is surprising to me that this is not getting more attention. This is sort of below the fold today uh, in the New York Times with this headline that Meta has removed what it is calling a Chinese effort to influence U.S. elections. So that is what the headline says. And then this is the absolutely the Russiagate playbook. A few paragraphs into this story, you get this. Two meta officials say they could not definitively attribute the campaign to any group or individuals, yet the tactics reflected China's growing efforts to use international social media to promote its political and diplomatic agenda. Okay, so it's China, except actually no one can definitively say it's China. They just sort of feel like it, you know, it walks like China. Um, I also want to point out this paragraph from the story. uh, uh, The New York Times tells us, Unlike Russian efforts over the last two presidential elections, the Chinese campaign appeared limited in scope and clumsy at times, which again forces me to recall the great myth of of the Russiagate faucet that was Russia is uh, hacking the election through social media. The efforts actually identified online and linked to this Internet research agency that were through that agency linked to Russia, uh, that that they were broad in scope or not clumsy is just inaccurate. I mean, you have this analysis in The Nation in 2018 saying the IRA's most shared pre-election Facebook post was a cartoon of Yosemite Sam. Uh, and on Instagram, its most shared post was a picture that said, like, if you believe in Jesus. I mean, the idea that this influenced a billion dollar presidential election is farcical. Uh, but, you know, Apparently, the the Chinese effort is not even as uh, broad or uh, adept as uh, Yosemite Sam and like if you uh, if you believe in Jesus. So I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, what what Meta did find and why they are linking it to China. Well, I I think I can tell you what Meta found. I think they found nothing. Mm. What they did instead was they committed an act of suspicion or an act of propaganda. I mean, this is written up by Stephen Lee Myers, who is one of the key propagandists 
for the New York Times against China. But even here, you can see that he's grasping at straws. I mean, really, this is pathetic. 81 accounts, eight pages, one group. <laughs> yeah, one group. I mean... Sorry, the, the the reach of these social media companies, the number of users is is enormous. I'm not going to try and guess off the top of my head. It's a huge figure. One one group, one group, and the only attribution, only evidence that they seem to be pointing at was that it was being posted during working hours in China. Well, you know, China is a very large place. A lot of countries have this those same hours, uh, and you know, so this is really really stretching it. I mean, it's just, it's it's kind of embarrassing to write these kinds of articles and then to publish them in quote, unquote, you know, the newspaper of record. And I think both uh, Meta and the New York Times should, you know, take a good look in the mirror and ask them, is this really worth the embarrassment and uh, humiliation that they're subjecting themselves. I mean, I think you can see evidence of this embarrassment in the fact that halfway through this article that is about its supposed Chinese influence effort, uh, you are told that Meta at the same time announced that it had taken down a much larger Russian influence operation uh, that was focused mostly in in Europe and in Britain. Uh, So they lead with this small, clumsy, ineffective campaign, and then we're told, oh, yeah, there's another big, sophisticated Russia campaign. And you have to think the only reason for this order is because even The New York Times knows that that Russiagate vein has has run dry. And, you know, I do think, I mean, we just had reports of, of a bunch of American accounts being taken down. So I do think that it, it is clear that there is, at some level, you know, people or impersonating other people from other countries online. I do not think that it is a good trend, but I think, you know, from what I can see, its its greatest effectiveness is in uh, creating, you know, foreign parties that you can then blame for domestic problems. I think you're absolutely right. You know, firstly, you know, these foreign parties are very poorly attributed, if at all. But you want to be able to say, as we saw with Russiagate, that whatever happened was not a cause, was not caused by uh, domestic incompetence or domestic lack of responsiveness to the basic needs uh, of uh, of the citizens, but that you know somebody else uh, was to blame. This is classical, classical uh, projection and uh, you know scapegoating. Uh, when really, you know, I think once again uh, the question is to look into the mirror and and to think, uh, reflect deeply. KJ, I know we we are coming up on this hard break, and I want to keep you over on the other side because I have some questions to ask you about the U.S. relationship with South Korea, uh, Kamala Harris's trip there, and and some uh, talk about the the apparent shift in Japan's foreign policy. But what I think we will do is I'm going to ask you uh, about what you've been writing about between um, North Korea and South Korea right now, and also the U.S. relationship with South Korea, and probably get your answer on the other side. Um, Last week, there was some speculation that South Korea might balk at U.S. requests for more land for its THAAD anti-missile system. But it seems like South Korean promises to closely communicate with China on the system weren't actually harbingers of, uh, you know, the South Korean government taking some kind of stand against giving away more land, uh, but in fact just meant 
you know, they were trying to say something nice to China while they gave the U.S. more of what it wants for this missile system that China finds extremely provocative. Um, But as you have been highlighting lately, the South Korean president's behavior toward the White House is a sort of tense combination of of obsequiousness and insult. Uh, Yoon Suk-yeol has been happy so far to maintain South Korea as a military base. You know, this this decision about Thad uh, is in line with that. But he also snubbed Nancy Pelosi on her recent trip to South Korea following her uh, very provocative trip to Taiwan. He then himself got snubbed on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly and then gets caught on a hot mic cursing out U.S. politicians. Uh, So uh, maybe we've got a minute here. I'll let you start your answer uh, to how how these personal issues could threaten the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and South Korea. And then I'll, I'll pick it up on the other side of this break. I think the key thing to understand is South Korea, South Korea's current administration, extraordinarily obsequious, but it is also double-faced. These are opportunists. They are not, uh, you know, um, true believers. And so um, uh, Yoon Seok-yeol, who is a political uh, novice without any understanding of how the political uh, process works, is going from, uh, you know, gas to gas. He's, he's a walking hot mic and that most recently demonstrated by his, by his, you know, uh, cursing out the U.S. Uh, Congress and the president in terms, in Korean language, you don't use language like that. Korea is very, very strict about its honorifics uh, and register. And this is just sheer gutter language that he was using against uh, the United States that speaks to the level of discontent and that this uh, obsequiousness and subservience is also characterized by great resentment. And you see that in the way that uh, Yun seems to be starting to play a little bit of a double game. KJ, I'm going to ask you to talk a little more about that double game on the other side of this break. We're talking to scholar KJ No. Uh, We're going to continue this conversation on the other side of this break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we continue to be joined by journalist KJ No, who's an Asia-Pacific geopolitics expert. KJ, you were talking to us about Yoon Suk-yeol playing a bit of a double game with the United States, and uh, I wanted to ask whether you think, you know, whether you think some of this... Uh, insult could go beyond language and actually perhaps affect the actual relationship between the U.S. and South Korea? It's early to say, but um, I, I assure you that Yoon Seok-yeol is um, a loose cannon, so I wouldn't put anything uh, behind him and his administration. I'll also point out that there are massive rallies against Yoon Seok-yeol that have already happened and more that will be scheduled in uh, October. And so I think Yoon Seok-yeol is already feeling the heat for his incompetence. Uh, and I think that he may also have to take domestic uh, pressure into consideration. 
But once again, coming back to the idea that he's playing this double game, yes, you know, on the one hand, he's uh, talked about, uh, you know, acceding to the U.S. chip war, which is to enclose the semiconductor supply chain. On the other hand, he goes and has, uh, you know, a full uh, summit with the Chinese, mm-hmm. talks about supply chain coordination and collaboration with China. Uh, regarding Assad, you know, he said one set of things to the United States. He said another set of things to the Chinese. Now, the Assad regarding, you know, more land for Assad, that's a tricky proposition. I don't think he can get it because uh, that land appropriation has to go through the South Korean uh, 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 legislative body. Uh, and I, he doesn't have the votes for it. What they did previously, they never had the votes for it. What they did instead previously when they installed the that was they asked Lotte, which was a private conglomerate, to donate their golf course to them. Mm-hmm. And because they hadn't appropriated any money for it, then they were able to install it. This is very, very underhanded action. But I don't think he has, I, I think he's making promises that he can't keep to the United States, and he's making promises to the Chinese that undermine even these promises. I also want to ask briefly, uh, you know, speaking of loose cannons, uh, talk to us about Kamala Harris's trip in Asia so far. It surprised John and I very much to discover that she was there. But of course, she's going to Shinzo Abe's funeral in Japan. She's going to the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. You know, is is this going to be anything more than ceremonial, this visit? Um, I think, you know, it's ceremony, but it's also, you know, the symbolism is also important. I think, if I'm not mistaken, she's the only major world leader uh, to attend Shinzo Abe's funeral. And as I've said before, Shinzo Abe is a very, very uh, divisive and conflicted character. He belongs to the Abe dynasty, which essentially created the one-party state in uh, Japan. And they're a group of revanchist militarist imperialists, you know, who have done nothing but create havoc and damage all over Asia. And so for her to attend uh, his uh, funeral when a large portion of the Japanese, if I'm not mistaken, the majority of Japanese do not want to have a state funeral for him, I think that speaks to poor judgment. Will she come back with anything concrete? I doubt it. Again, you know, we, we're talking about a series of gaffes machines. And mm-hmm. Vice President Harris has not distinguished herself in the diplomatic front in any of her uh, ventures. And it would not surprise me that she comes back uh, empty handed and perhaps even uh, even more, uh, you know, embarrassed uh, after this trip. Yeah, she's almost she's almost a figure of, of pathos at this point, Kamala Harris. It's it's too easy uh, to, you know, mostly what she generates are like uh, 35 second clips of her saying something that sounds like total gobbledygook and then nobody knows where she disappears to next. It's it's getting sad. KJ, I have one, one final question for you on Japan, uh, just because this this caught my eye. It is from a piece in The Diplomat that was mostly reflecting on Abe's legacy. Uh, but this in the subhead, I thought, was something of a clangor. It said that Japan is transitioning now toward a more values-based foreign policy. And I wonder if you can talk to us about what that is supposed to mean in practice. I have a guess, uh, and I'm not sure values-based is what I would call it, but I wonder what you make of it. Well, uh, it's a contrast to Shinzo Abe, who was kind of, you know, he was casting a very, very wide net 
in order to get support for his uh, desire for a remilitarized Japan. Uh, as opposed to this, what we're seeing is a trend back towards the block forming, which I think really has less to do with Abe than it has to do with the current political moment where, you know, blocks are hardening. And what uh, the Japanese uh, are doing, Kishida is doing, is they're throwing their lot in with the quote-unquote Western Atlantic, quote-unquote democratic, uh, uh, you know, block. Uh, you know, does that make sense on any level regarding uh, human rights? Of course not. I mean, Japan is, uh, you know, it's a one-party, it's a de facto one-party state that was created by a collaboration between the Yakuza and the U.S. intelligence services. It's a caste society that discriminates, for example, against Koreans. It treats them worse than African-Americans in the United States, if you can even believe that. It has unresolved issues from the comfort women, the slave labor, uh, and it constantly, you know, trends towards this fascist imperialist militarism uh, that it wants to uh, move forward under the cover of U.S. alliance. But I think it has very much its own agenda. And so I think the, the whole notion of a values-based foreign policy is is a contradiction in terms. Foreign policy in general, you know, is realist at best and ideological uh, uh, at worst. Mm -hmm. I think this is uh, just a silliness in the diplomat. That was KJ No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. He's also a member of Veterans for Peace. Uh, KJ, is there anywhere our, our listeners should go to find more of the work that you're doing? Well, you can see my most recent article in the Asia Times and Counterpunch, and that article is uh, sharp-tongued uh, uh, Korean leader versus short U.S. attention span. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it's always fun to read your your pieces, KJ. Thanks as always for joining us. Anybody who is watching on Rumble now will see that we've also been joined uh, by a guest in studio, which is always a treat for us. We're joined by longtime comedian and social justice activist Randy Credico. He's the former director of the William J. Kunstler Fund for Social Justice. He hosts the radio show Live on the Fly, which airs on Wednesday afternoons on New York's WBAI. He is also a friend of my co-host, John Kiriakou. Randy, thanks for being here. Yes, uh, nice. I haven't been in the studio in a couple of years, uh, so it's um, really a pleasure to join you. We tried to tidy up yes. a little bit, as you can see. <laughs> it's so, been a long yes, time. Well, it looks fact, great. Last time, hey, they, that old picture that they're using of me makes me look nice and thin and young. I appreciate that very much, whoever did that. Yes. It's well, been a couple of years since you've been in the studio, and I think I, we were in the small studio last time you were in. Yeah, yes, I, I believe so. It was, uh, it was way back, more than that, like three or four years ago. But, John, thank you. Yeah. You know, I haven't been back on The Tonight Show. I did that in 1984, and uh, they didn't invite me back uh, after I <laughs> slammed Jane Kirkpatrick and uh, and uh <laughs> likened her to uh, Ava Braun. So they said, uh, he's not coming back. So I, it was my, uh, you know, one trip on national TV uh, back in 1984. But it's great to be here. And it's good I, I, you're not here. I was hoping to see you today. Go outside and drive that mobile truck. I see the truck everywhere. And actually, that's something I want to ask you about. If you don't mind, I've got a little, I've got a little intro 
okay. so that my questions don't sound like they're just out of uh, left field. But but you you've hit on something that's very important to me that I want to bring up. So I want to start by saying that that in the highest profile prosecution yet of a January 6th defendant, Stuart Rhodes, this is the founder of the Oath Keepers and several co-defendants, he goes on trial today for seditious conspiracy, a charge that carries a 20-year prison sentence. Rhodes is accused of recruiting and training his co-conspirators and stashing weapons at a hotel in Arlington, Virginia, less than a mile from my house. Um, Another two co-conspirators have accepted pleas and are working with the government against uh, Stuart Rhodes. They're going to testify against him. Meanwhile, Republican Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson are demanding to know why the FBI never informed anybody that Igor Denchenko, a primary source in the Russiagate fiasco, was a paid informant and had admitted in his interview with the FBI to having done work or being connected, we don't know, let's use air quotes around that, to Russian intelligence. And another important issue that I want to raise with you, Randy, is British rock legend and Pink Floyd co-founder Roger Waters last week posted on his website an open letter to Ukraine's first lady in which he opposed sending additional weapons and aid to Ukraine. The letter enraged a handful of Polish politicians, and they canceled several upcoming concerts there. So let's start off with um, the Oath Keepers. This uh, this trial that begins today uh, is a big deal. Stuart Rhodes is the founder of the Oath Keepers. I don't care what the guy says he does. The bottom line is that he's dangerous. I He brought a load of weapons that he kept in his hotel room right up the street here uh, in Arlington, Virginia, apparently with the intent to use them. We don't know why he had a hotel room full of, of weapons. But you don't bring a cache of weapons with you unless you plan to use them. So my first question is, why do you think he's doubling down? Why not seek a plea, try to mitigate some of the damage, and then try to move on with your life? You uh, think he's trying to prove some kind of a point? Well, I may, maybe so. Maybe, I mean, you know, he's uh, very dedicated uh, to his uh, beliefs and uh, will go down as a, a martyr in the eyes of uh, right. his followers. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know about All I know is I'm staying in Arlington, uh, Virginia, and you just scared me. So I'm going to uh, go down to Alexandria where it's safe or Fort Meade. All right? Let them spy on me. I don't care. But as long as they don't see a cache of weapons in the neighborhood. Uh, but I don't know about this. Uh, you know, I was going to go buy uh, the, that courthouse today and pass out flyers for the event on uh, the yeah. 8th uh, that the we're eighth. having. But I think I'll stay clear of uh, the Oath Keepers because they're connected to uh, somebody, that, a nefarious individual that uh, pulled me into uh, some um, bogus, uh, you know, uh, operation back in 2017. Yes. Operation, Indeed, actually, a big scam, big, uh, big scam, a big lie. And uh, you know the story. Yes, and that was my next question, actually. You have been wrongly tied over the past five years to Roger Stone, who loves nothing more than to throw himself into the center of a controversy. You know, this is one of the things that that I noticed about Roger Stone immediately upon meeting him. It's that even if he's not involved in a controversy, he tells everybody that he is. 
because he loves the attention. He's a showman. He just thrives. He's yeah. a showman. Look, I've known He's the guy. Showman. I've known the guy for 20 years. I mean, on and off, five years, I'd go without seeing him, eight years. But I know the guy loves attention. And if he has to lie about it, he's connected to everything. He's very Walter Mitty-ish. You know what I mean? He has dreams yeah. of being involved in major, or, or he's like Zelig. You know, he wants to be in the picture. But what's bitten him in the ass, though, is that... He told the FBI one thing, and then he told the House Investigating Committee another thing, and he couldn't remember what he had said to each organization. And then he ended up with, what was it, seven felony charges of making a false statement or perjury? Right. He got himself into all kinds of trouble. Well, after a period of quiet, you know, you remember he was he was pardoned. He was convicted in 2019 right. and then pardoned in 2020. He's been quiet for a while, but all of a sudden we're hearing a lot from Roger Stone again. Is this just grandstanding or is he going to find himself in a courtroom again? Listen, he loves it. Uh, He loves uh, the attention. And uh, the only thing that would be worse than being indicted would be to get no attention whatsoever for him. Uh, So uh, he's showboating probably. Uh, but uh, it's it's all a bunch of hot air, and that's his M.O. has been. Uh, I mean, he took credit for bringing down Spitzer, and the New York Times yeah. guy who brought down Spitzer uh, said uh, Roger had nothing to do with it. And he, he took credit for uh, the uh, the Brooks brother uh, riot in, uh, in Florida back in 2000, but he had nothing to do with it. He was not there, but he tells people, and some people like Jeffrey Tubin actually believed it yeah, and wrote a book him. about it. About it, or a big article about it. He had nothing to do with it, but he likes to place himself in these historical epics, and uh, and uh, so the consequences uh, can be bad. I mean, especially with this thing with Julian Assange, which I, he had nothing to do with Julian Assange whatsoever. There's no back channel. Wasn't me. I. It wasn't the other guy. The the, the, the other guy who uh, was uh, claiming to be Roger's in between person. Roger had nothing to do. All this did was hurt Julian Assange. All this did was associate him with Roger Stone. Stone had nothing to do with it. I mean, the the whole premise of Julian Assange, imagine this. He's got this great story, and before he puts it out— this bombshell story, whatever it is, he's going to give it to Roger Stone and say, keep it under your hat? Seriously. Why would any journalist ever give it to Roger Stone? He's waiting and waiting and waiting to put something out. He he vets it. He makes sure everything is perfect. That's why he has never published, never had to recant anything and put it out there. Why would he Why would he tip his myth to anybody? So, uh, But Stone jumped on it. People associated Stone with Assange. And therefore, Assange was connected with Trump, whatever. And all it did was hurt Julian Assange in the end. And it's taken a long time for people to finally realize that Stone, if they have, uh, really had nothing to do uh, with uh, Julian Assange. But like I said, that kind of – it's almost like a COINTELPRO operation, the way they got him – associated uh, with with, um, with uh, Roger Stone, Julian, as they did with this bogus uh, sex allegation in Sweden. All you have to do is read Niels Melzer's book, and you'll see this has been a Brilliant. very, a very uh, carefully concocted uh, way of uh, dismissing, demeaning, uh, vilifying Julian Assange, and they've been doing it for 10 years, and that's why you don't see a lot of people in the street out there uh, in support of Julian Assange in this country. 
Yeah, you are absolutely right. We've been hearing a lot lately, Randy, about about so-called FBI whistleblowers. There are 14 FBI agents who have told Representative Jim Jordan, a Republican of Ohio, that they were wronged because they participated in the January 6th protest and they were discriminated against for doing that. Several also complained about this character, Igor uh, Danchenko. It turns out that the information that these FBI agents uh, brought out is legit. Danchenko was a primary FBI source in support of Russiagate. It turns out that the FBI was paying him, which they have never admitted before. This is just coming out in the last 24 hours. And that they were paying him when they knew that he had connections to Russian intelligence. And, and let me clarify that. When I say connections to Russian intelligence, I mean in his polygraph exams um, that the FBI gave him, he admitted that in the past he had spoken to Russian intelligence officers. So what happens with this? It seems to me that it's too important to just fade away. You can criticize Jim Jordan. I certainly do all the time. And you can criticize some of these malcontent FBI agents who don't know when to stay home and watch the thing unfold on TV rather than to take the metro down to the Capitol on January 6th. But this Danchenko thing seems to have legs to me. What do you think? I think you're right. And I'm just hearing about it myself, so I haven't had a chance to uh, chomp on it uh, in the last 24 hours. But uh, uh, I think if what you're saying is correct, it's a, it's a major scandal. And uh, look, the FBI has always brought in shady characters, uh, misfits, liars. In the case of Julian Assange, they had that guy from Iceland, Ziggy, that they bribed, yes. they, they threatened, uh, and he came out and told all sorts of lies, and and they uh, they wrote it down, and that was a part of the uh, you know the charges was from this guy. He later recanted. The guy's a, is a, a, a sexual abuser of children. He's been convicted yeah. of it. He's an embezzler. But they still, they still gave him money, gave him his freedom uh, if he would just lie about Julian Assange. So uh, in this case, uh, with, with, with Jordan and these FBI agents, I think it's it's really significant. And uh, uh, I know we're going to hear about it here, but will we hear about it uh, later on today if you watch MSNBC or, or CNN? I would uh, probably think not, uh, although I have not seen Either one of those stations since mid-February. I stopped watching both of those stations because yeah. all they've done is anything. gaslight. And uh, it's like a one-sided Pentagon, CIA, uh, Fed. Uh, you know, they, they are basically uh, U.S. state media-affiliated uh, organs, both of them. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And so I'm Randy. not going to find that today if I go and watch, finally mm -hmm. – Break, break the eight-month embargo of those two stations. Yeah. I want to ask you about Roger Waters. I want you to walk us through this situation with him. Roger is one of the most genuine, selfless, most generous people I have ever met. He wears his politics on his sleeve. His career has suffered for that, whether it's support for the Palestinian people or support for, uh, for uh, Black Lives peace. Matter. In Ukraine, Black Lives Matter, he took it on the chin for. Uh, but some people don't like that. Uh, so explain to us what happened in Poland 
Well, you know what happened in Poland. He came out and uh, he has. Uh, he wrote a letter. <laughs> he wrote that letter uh, and uh, in support, it's like, hey, we got we got to negotiate. I mean, he was on CNN uh, with uh, Smirkanov, and he came on. And he said, right. hey, let's let's step back on the perception that we have of. What does war or military action, whatever, where did it start? And Roger said it started in 2014 and, uh, you know, gave him an object lesson in what the history of Ukraine and Russia uh, affairs are. And so, uh, look, he's been taking it on the chin since then. He's on a death list, that uh, Azov battalion uh, death list. Uh, He's, uh, you know, but he sticks his he sticks to to his conscience, and you, he's unwavering, he's unflagging, and he is tireless, and he's always going to tell the truth. And uh, so Roger Waters, in this case here in Poland, I, w- I would have said, look, Roger, why would you book, book uh, you know, the show in Poland? <laughs> That's a very dangerous place to go for him. I mean, it's dangerous <laughs> everywhere right now. I'm going to go see him in Glendale. Um, uh, Arizona. I shouldn't say that because maybe I'll be on the Azov Battalion's death list. Uh, but uh, I'm going to go see him there. Uh, I've I've seen the show four times. It's an incredible uh, journey. It really is. It's this uh, this cinematic uh, musical uh, extravaganza. Uh, there's I've never seen anything like it. Seriously, this will be the fifth time, and I can't wait to see it again. It's as good as anything I've ever seen on the live stage, and that includes uh, uh, Traviata and Louis Armstrong. <laughs> Seriously, uh, it's it's really worth it's really worth uh, seeing if you can before it ends October fifteenth. But if you're anywhere near where Roger Waters is performing, because he is a man, like I said, of, of strong political um, uh, views, uh, and they're exactly like mine. Everything that he talks about, I agree with. I subscribe to a hundred percent of his political positions. Uh, so uh, he, he can't be bought. He's seventy nine years old. And he's doing these two yeah. and a half hour concerts all the time. He's traveling yeah, around the stage, country. He he becomes a thirty year old on stage. Yes. I, I went to the show with you when he was here in Washington. It was unlike any concert I've ever seen in my life. It was a it was like art that was unfolding before my eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you should have invited Ray because she wanted to come, uh, and I had an extra ticket, but huh? I didn't know she wanted to what? show up. But uh, you know. Next time, when he's back and back to, doing a repeat performance in D.C. next year. Yeah. She's smiling in that. the studio. All right. So, um, and one for you. All right. So, Thank look, you very you've much. Got Ray's to, back you've there pumping her fist you've got, in this. You've got to see room. it, folks, if you get a chance. It's I'm sure it'll be, on, uh, it'll be on Netflix or something like that or uh, pay TV or whatever. But if you get a chance, you got to see the show. There's really nothing like it, uh, John. And uh, – and I understand you're not going to be in the studio today. No, I am right. not in the studio today. And I think not in the studio the rest of the week. Really? Uh, really? So yeah. we're going to have to come to you. Me and James, the uh, truck driver, we have a pile of flyers Excellent. to give you. Uh, and uh, Oh, very good. This is about the uh, – can I plug this? Do I have time to plug these Saturday? Yeah, I was going to have you plug it in, in five minutes. Okay, yeah, let's no, keep right talking. No, no, go ahead. Ask me some more questions. I'm on a roll. Okay, I, well, I want to ask you more specifically about Julian. Um, we had Kevin Gastala on the show yesterday. 
and we were talking about Julian and the extradition uh, uh, situation. So I'll ask you the same question I asked him. Many of us thought that Julian would have been extradited to the U.S. by now, and we would be fighting for Julian on this side. But the case is still pending in the U.K.'s high court. Do you think that there's any chance that he can actually win this appeal? His case seemed to be so clear for many of us. I, I can't believe that that he hasn't won at every step of the way, but I'm I'm biased. Yeah. So yeah, why no, do you – There's no case against them. There's you no say? case. Espionage act uh, on the face of it is is for spies, uh, people that go uh, grab the enemy uh, – I mean, uh, you know – Plans for war, battle plans, and give it to the other side. That's what the Espionage Act is written up, is for. Although we know it was to repress any dissent in World War One. That's why they went after Eugene Debs, exactly. uh, Victor Berger, a Shank, and even Robert Goldman, the film producer, uh, right. and, and many others. Uh, and so it's being used to quell dissent right now and quell uh, journalism. Uh, in the case of Julian Assange, he's not an American citizen. So how can he commit espionage act in this country? And uh, he, he's an Australian citizen. He's a journalist. And this is definitely uh, one of those cases, if it happens, if he were to be extradited here, it would be all over for him. Because that 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 place in uh, – he may as well go to Guantanamo if he's going to go to Alexandria. He's not going to get out of there. It would be five, six, seven years before you go to trial. And that's what they want, John. Why do you think they keep yes. – Bouncing around there with the appeals and the little game they're playing. It's so transparent. They just want him not to talk. He hasn't written anything. He hasn't published anything. He can't go on the Internet. He can't broadcast. He can't be interviewed. And that's what they want. As the U.S. has this proxy war happening right now, they don't want someone like that. They don't want anybody else. That's why everybody has fallen in line and just repeated, echoed everything that's coming out of the Pentagon on the situation in Ukraine and Russia. So they don't exactly want, they right. don't want uh, you know, what is the U.S. doing? Well, no one's really digging into it. No one's talking. Well, you guys talk about it. And, you know, alternative media is. But, you know, uh, you, if there are a lot of people who fear. There's a lot of fear-mongering uh, going on right now. If you go yeah. over here down the yeah. street, you can't even get a Stoli Martini. You have to go with something from, uh, you know, Ukrainian vodka. Uh, so, oh, good uh, Lord. Uh-huh. But, uh, I mean, Tchaikovsky is going to be uh, banned uh, from radio stations. So, uh, you know, it's it's really – we live in a very bad time. Things are scary, uh, and everybody in, in, in media, in mainstream media, uh, has uh, just – you know, they've – not only have they echoed everything, but they have – that gone AWOL when it comes to Julian Assange. Yeah. They've left him in the trenches to die. Is basically this reminds me of World War One trench warfare, where you leave a guy in the trenches that's wounded and you just get up and leave. That's what MSNBC talking heads and uh, CNN talking heads are doing. They're leaving a guy in the trenches who is really the, he's really a great journalist. These people Can I are. Ask- Randy, do you think if if and when Assange is extradited to the United States, does it force the United States media to to come out and and address it at least for for a moment? Because they have been very reluctant to do so, and it's very convenient with Assange, as you say, absolutely silenced in Belmarsh Prison. You know, does does the you know. Uh, an extradition in the near future, you know, provide an opportunity to sort of force some of these uh, media organs to at least like demonstrate their hypocrisy, well, you know? 
I, I, I would think so. I would hope so. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of people out there that would like to, but, you know, they got families to feed. They got children that go to college, and mm-hmm. uh, they know the boundaries. The boundaries are, you know, the CIA wants them so badly. John knows they don't forget. All right, Vault no, 7 the, Vault seven was it. That's really the, uh, the point where— it's almost no return for Julian, uh, you know, to his family because of Vault Seven. That's the catapult into the situation that he's in right now. It has no, it has a lot to do with uh, you know the the, uh, the war logs and all of that. But uh, yes. once the uh, Vault Seven was released, the CIA, yeah, that did it. You know, forget about it. They uh, are obsessing about this. Trump probably would have probably would have uh, pardoned him. At the end, right. I think. But someone said, look, you can do anything, but don't do that. I mean, they're very serious about this. And so all we can do is we're fighting a very difficult foe here. And they've, they've done this COINTELPRO operation on Assange. What we have to do is give out information, read the books that are out there by Stefani Marici, listen to this show, uh, read the book uh, by uh, Niels Melzer. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there. He is an innocent man. He's an innocent man. I mean, he did what yeah. espionage? I mean, it's just complete garbage. They they fabricated uh, some kind of uh, uh, charge against him. Seventeen charges of espionage uh, of espionage uh, violations. Uh, this really is about revenge uh, by the CIA, and um, you know they hope that he just dies there because it yes. would be a spectacle if he comes to this country, it would be a spectacle because they'd have to uh, resurrect or, res- or bring back the, the, the war logs. People would see what he exposed. We see that That's every right. single day, you know, and it would intensify. So what did Assange do? Well, let's see. He's being charged with that, connecting him to the war logs, which he got. Somebody gave it. He's a journalist, and mm-hmm. he put it on. Uh, and so let's take a look at those war logs. Let's take a look at the torture. Let's take a look at the corruption. Let's take a look at what uh, Donna Brazil and what—but uh, he's not charged with that. But this— if the CIA wants us to be talking about their torture, uh, uh, John's already exposed it, uh, but they've done it massively. The war war logs is only a, a drop in the bucket uh, when it comes to the amount of crimes, crimes against humanity that the U.S. committed both in Afghanistan and Iraq. I, and, that's right. I also want to say, it, you know, John and I have talked and, and we've talked on this show for a while now about how it's interesting to watch. You know, the the New York Times and the Washington Post sort of belatedly discover uh, mischaracterizations about our various wars. You know, it always takes about five years. In the case of Afghanistan, it took a lot longer. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple years ago, the Washington Post has its big Afghanistan files where it says, oh, hey, look, the military has been lying to us, lying to us about Afghanistan since day one. We've suddenly realized that every year when they told us we were about to win the war, that it was a lie. The New York Times in the last year has uh, suddenly discovered that things in Syria might not always be what they seem, and the U.S. forces mm-hmm. there are not always acting in, a, in, a, in an above-board way that protects civilians. And so, again, it's especially, you know, given that, as you say, I think it's absolutely correct that it was Vault 7 that really damned yeah, Julian Assange. But, you know, uh, you know, he is most associated with publishing uh, the war logs, publishing uh, images and and text about the Iraq war that that uh, the government, U.S. government didn't want people to see. But now the mainstream is sort of caught up 
And it's popular to say, oh, yeah, of course it was bad. Oh, yeah, of course our hands are a little bit dirty. We just pulled out of Afghanistan after 20 years. It's going to, think I feel like, be especially hard to create some kind of cover in which they can continue to report, uh, you know, slightly critically on some of our international involvements, but still manage to say somehow the way Julian Assange did it was, was wrong and he deserves to rot in prison, right? I do think there's the possibility... There is the possibility to to really demonstrate this hypocrisy in a way that's going to hit home. I mean, I don't, you know. I think you're right. I, 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 I totally, so. I think, uh, but I don't think he's, I actually don't believe he's going to be extradited here. Mm-hmm. I actually don't. I think, and I, I don't want to compare the cases. They're doing a Noriega on him right now, uh, where Noriega, who knew so much about the CIA, knew so much about the Bush's involvement in drugs and all of that, uh, Felix Gonzalez and everything. And so what they did was him was push him around all of these prisons and never let him speak yeah. publicly. And that's what they want to do with Assange. It's, you can't compare the two. One's a great guy, one's a, a thug, a CIA, uh, you know, uh, Cadillo down there. But uh, they're doing, they just don't want, they don't want him to come here. They just want him to be in this, what's really uh, a ground floor version of the Tower of London with all of its instruments of torture because he is being psychologically and physically tortured. Can you imagine in a room half the size of this studio, maybe a third the size, being in there every single day, unable to practice your trade? All right. It's Beethoven in a room without a piano. That's what it's Tolstoy without a pen or John Kiriakou without a pen and a typewriter. (laughs) All right, so um, <laughs> Roger Waters without a microphone. So, I mean, he is really, uh, you know, the, the kind. My father did 10 years in prison. John, you did a couple years. I know that. Uh, I know yep. the effects it has on not just the person that goes, but on the entire family. It really has a huge effect. And Julian has been in a prison three and a half years. He's been a political prisoner for 12 years. Let me repeat that. A political prisoner for 12 years. And the only person they care about is Navalny. That's all they care about, the media. They don't care about this guy. They're making Navalny look like he's Nelson Mandela when it's Julian Assange who is the Nelson Mandela in this case. In this situation, and uh, people need to get on board. Twelve years separating him. Look, there's what we're passing out outside. Yeah. A picture of Julian, his uh, his wife Stella, and his kids uh, Gabriel and Max. So they've been separated. Let's reunite this family. What kind of Catholic are you, Joe Biden? Yeah. You're a real family man, huh? You, Randy, Randy, uh, people are going to want to get involved. I want you to tell them about the truck. I want you to tell them about uh, October the 8th and what uh, what Julian's friends may be planning in the event that he is extradited. Well, I there's no who knows if he's going to be extradited. We're out there, by the way, John, in the, in the Roach Motel called uh, Eastern District of Virginia where defendants go in and they don't come out. Uh, but uh, we're going to be uh, – we, we go by there and they're well aware of us. Uh, James is the truck driver. Uh, and I, you know, I sit uh, shotgun with him and uh, we've got uh, Ben. Ben Cohen is now uh, matching all donations uh, to uh, this truck. It started out seven weeks ago today. It started wow. seven weeks ago. So we've been on the street through some hellish uh, summer days uh, and it's getting winter. And we're looking for winter soldiers right now because these are the times that try men's souls at this point in time. And we need them. Uh, we are out passing out flying. 
flyers for October 8th, and we are passing out very nice uh, trifolds, and we got these beautiful, we keep rotating uh, the uh, panels on, on this truck. We've got like eight or ten, I think ten altogether. We, so there's two-sided truck. Big, it's 14 by 8, and then you got a vertical one in the back, and you got one smaller one in front, and you can see it all over town. And I know you've seen it three or four times, uh, John, yeah. and we just keep uh, floating around. We go to the Eastern District of Virginia Courthouse where uh, Daniel Hale uh, was, uh, was framed and, uh, you know, uh, thrown in prison for 48 months. We go there. We, we drive around that little circle there, and the, the federal marshals are aware of us, and then we park it uh, right nearby. We pass out the flyers there, and uh, then we go to uh, George Washington University, pass out flyers uh, there and park it, and people come by, and they look at it, and they see uh, these beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, panels uh, that, uh, you know, were uh, put together by a fellow by the name of Bean. We give him the information, and he makes magic out of them. Uh, Somerset Bean, I just want to give him a plug. And... Uh, we go there, and then we go to Capitol Hill. We go right by the um, the uh, Capitol Hill Club, where so you get a lot of these guys in the bad Sears suits and the in the in the yep. brown uh, brown uh, brogues uh, uh, walk by, and uh, you know, and they look, and these guys are all bought and paid for. You know, it's like you, it, the RNC guys are the only they're right next door to it. There's the RNC Club. They actually come out and get the flyers, but the Capitol Hill Club, you know, these are. And there's restaurants on that block, uh, but they're yeah. all they're all in the tank. All right, these guys are all afraid. I mean, you got one guy that's good on this, and that's this guy by the name of Massey from Kentucky. Uh, yes, he's a, Thomas uh, Massey. Thomas Massey has been great. I spoke to his uh, one of his uh, staff members the other day. So uh, look. We can all come together on this issue, and that's what we're trying to do. Democrats, and you, you know who bothers me the most? It, are the two bother me the most? They're supposedly uh, constitutional scholars, and that is um, Jamie Raskin and uh, and uh, Nadler, uh, Gerald Nadler. Yeah, These Jerry guys are constitutional Nadler. scholars, but they won't go near. This is an assault. This is a real coup. All right, this is a coup. At, you know, you talk about January 6th, whatever, you know— yeah, that was a terrible thing, whatever you want to call it, but insurrection. What happened? What's happening now? This is an assault. Julian Assange is an assault on the First Amendment. The First Amendment is the is the pillar, the strongest pillar that holds this fragile, ersatz democracy up. You take that pillar out and the table falls, and then we don't have a republic anymore. Right. Okay, so this that's, that's right. a coup. That's an insurrection against this democracy. That's what's happening in the case of Julian Assange. And this is not hyperbole here. If that goes, that First Amendment and all... People in the world of journalism should take notice. You could be next if they that's if, right. if, if they wipe out that pillar, the First Amendment, because that's what would happen, uh, and uh, so it has will have such a chilling effect. And that's why so many human rights groups around the world have come out in support of Julian Assange. In fact, Amnesty International said this would have such a chilling effect on uh, journalism that uh, it could undermine uh, what. What you know? I don't consider this a democracy, but it's uh, you know it's kind of a republic. But it would we it definitely is an imperfect country. Uh, but we can improve on it if they take out and they wipe it out uh, and take out that uh, most important pillar, John. We are going to have to let you go. We were whoa, thrilled whoa, to whoa, have. Whoa, whoa. I didn't get to do one impression. <laughs> 
Well, oh, sorry. Yes, well, you I, forgot you know to that's, say that's, that I was an impressionist. A good to have you back. I, I was going to do my Reagan impression. In five minutes, uh, this uh, Credico is going to be uh, wiped out. All right. No. Remember that? We went to the studio in five minutes. We're going to bomb Credico. All right. <laughs> At any rate, John, uh, both of you, I want to thank everybody for having me on this show. Uh, and uh, Miss Witty, Mrs. Witty, Witty, you're very witty. It's all I can thank say. You so You've got much. a great sense of humor. And uh, it's great to meet you in person. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, whoever made this uh, coffee for me is Ray. Yes. All right. The, uh, it didn't have milk. I think it had liqueur in it because I am getting a little lightheaded here. Seriously. Well, we let you get out and get I gotta some go air get some then. oxygen. I'll go I'll go to the Capitol Hill Club because they got a lot of oxygen tanks there, so all those blowhards can keep taking oxygen. All right. There you go. All right. Uh, John will drop by and bring us some uh, we'll bring us some uh, uh, feta and uh, souvlaki. All right? Please do. Please a little Turkish do. coffee there to spark him up. <laughs> And some Turkish uh, coffee. Uh, a little we can conflict. Talk about that later. Power will right. power you through this. Thank you, you for giving me so much time. Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back with our final guest. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou going straight into a conversation about the hurricanes headed for Florida and also uh, the relationship of fashion to some of the environmental and climate changes we're witnessing. Joining us for these two Related but distant topics is <laughs> Tina Landis, environmental and social activist and author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Thank you for joining with us, Tina. Having me. Uh, so I, we had plans to have this conversation about uh, the impact of fashion on our world and our climate. But since we do have Hurricane Ian uh, barreling toward Florida, Category three storm that made landfall in Cuba today. Uh, it looks like, I mean, it has the potential to be a really catastrophic storm uh, for the the Gulf Coast of Florida. The big question right now, where it will hit and whether uh, the city of Tampa is going to get hit by a hurricane uh, directly for the first time in a century. Um you know, hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico are not new. Big storms in the Gulf are not new. Um, there is research that points toward climate change, accelerating these storms' ability to intensify and then also slowing them down. Global warming is also going to expand the areas hurricanes are able to form and travel. And so all of this points to a need to invest in a more robust infrastructure if we want to continue to have big population centers in the southeastern United States, for example. And so I wonder if you can talk to us about, you know, what, what we've seen so far in terms of adaptation in the United States to these realities. Really little to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Biden administration just put $3 billion into this, you know, FEMA, expanded FEMA grant program called Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, but it's only $3 billion is nothing mm -hmm. compared to, you know, how weak our infrastructure is in this country and just the 
immense increasing climate impacts that we're facing. Um, you know, and we know how, how inefficient FEMA has always been in the past and how, you know, their own internal study recently showed that they give more funding to affluent white homeowners than they do to the most impacted, most vulnerable, low-income communities that get hit by these disasters. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the story that follows every environmental disaster, it seems like. And, you know, it, to that end, it seems always worthwhile to talk about, uh, you know, I mean, Cuba is also in this hurricane's path. Cuba is, uh, you know, feeling this storm already. And I wonder if you can talk to us about what that island has been able to do to enable itself to weather these storms, uh, especially, you know, uh, as it endures a decades-long um uh, embargo imposed by the United States. Yeah, so despite that Cuba gets hit directly by more intense hurricanes than the U.S., you're actually 15 times more likely to die in a hurricane in the U.S. than you are in Cuba. And that's because they put the well-being, Cuba as a socialist country, puts the well-being of the population as the priority, right? So they mobilize all the society in advance of storms, you know, make sure everyone is evacuated and, and taken to safety and that no one is left behind, unlike the U.S., right, where where you're, it's up to you to, to get the means to evacuate, you know, to find a place to stay, you know, all these things that are really out of reach for a lot of low-income communities in the U.S. Um, and then, you know, after a storm passes in Cuba, everyone is guaranteed a home afterwards, you know, and we know how it goes in the U.S. Like, so much homelessness is a result of climate disasters, wildfires and, and storms and things like this. Um, and, yeah, they also, Cuba also has a 100-year plan right now for climate change adaptation called Project Life, which they launched in 2017, that's helping communities you know, address sea level rise and the impacts of these increasingly strong hurricanes and shoring up their wetlands and reef systems that help protect coasts from storm surge and things like this. Um, you know, we're seeing nothing like that in the U.S. There's so much that could be done with the wealth that this country has. And, you know, despite, like you said, the 60-plus the year U.S. blockade against Cuba that has really, you know, limited the resources that the Cuban society has, um, they're still doing so much more to protect their population and to adapt to the changing climate. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, things that we spend our wealth on, the the topic that I wanted to talk about before this hurricane blew up is this uh, perennial problem of, of fashion, the environment and the climate. New York Fashion Week was held earlier this month. And once again, all of these companies that want to compel you to buy new things several times a year, right? Fall season, spring season, resort wear, you know, there's always a new occasion to try to sell you clothes. They also supposedly have plans that will somehow make this level of consumption okay. And yet, Despite all these great plans and these uh, climate change inspired fashion shows, the U.N. says the fashion industry alone contributes between 2 percent and 8 percent of global carbon emissions, which, you know, is a lot when you think of like the you know clothes and shoes. Uh, and so I wonder if you could talk to us about how, you know, how, how nasty this industry is actually able to remain. Yeah, it's, it's a very bad, bad industry in relation to the environment and climate. It's actually the second biggest consumer of water. Mm-hmm this industry, um, you know, a hundred, there's around a hundred billion garments produced each year and only 30% or actually 30% of those produced never actually sold uh. <laughs> to landfills and incinerators. Um, you know, most of the clothing is made from synthetic fibers, which produce micro- microplastics when you wash them, you know, um, it's a, 
big, big problem. And the toxic chemicals and the dyes that go straight into the oceans and, you know, all these things. It's just, and it's driven by this, by marketing, right? Marketing that arose after World War II that really pushed the consumer society and, and this sort of concept of perceived ob- obsolescence where, like you said, you need the latest fashions because of social pressures, right? And also planned obsolescence where things are actually made not to last. Mm-hmm. They wear out after a few months. And really, you know, most of society can't afford, you know, actual lasting products <laughs> are very expensive. And so most of us are forced to buy these disposable clothing products that, that are just filling up our landfills and, and just, yeah, consuming all these resources for no reason. Mm-hmm. Like very ludicrous, and it's part of the system, the capitalist system of overproduction that's just that drives this production model, and it, it encourages it in a way. I mean, this is the thing. A lot of this feels enforced by poverty. And of course, New York Fashion Week is for, uh, you know, it's it, it's for. Uh, extremely expensive high-end designers. Uh, it seems to me the real, the issue is is uh, massively produced and consumed fast fashion. And it does seem like a lot more people are more aware now that, you know, shoes that cost $12 cannot have been made under acceptable labor or environmental conditions. T-shirts that cost $3 and that, you know, are in the store for 10 days and then disappear. Where do they go? What do they do? People understand that this is bad on some level, even if you can't explain it in a lot of detail. But as you say, awareness does not make people any better able to afford more expensive better made clothes, more expensive, better made food, or, or, you know, better able to withstand the pressure to constantly consume in lieu of like having any other more meaningful pleasures in your life. And so it sort of feels like um, it, it is, in fact, like the, the pressures that keep people poor, that keep some of these industries afloat. And I wonder uh, if you could talk a little bit more about that. And also if there is any, if you get any sense that maybe um, some of this awareness is, is affecting the industry's bottom line or if it continues to thrive. Yeah, I mean, there is growing awareness and I know people, more, more people would like to be able to, to buy sustainable products, but it's, it's, it's just out of the reach of most and it's just not, it's not enough people, right? And the majority can't. And like, for instance, even if companies do want to go green, like truly green, for instance, um, Puma, the footwear company, did a study a few years back to, to truly green their company and make it sustainable. Um, and they realized after the study that it would mean they would go bankrupt because to really be sustainable, would the cost would be in, you know out of reach um, and make their products just out of reach to everyone. Um, so it's it's really the capitalist system is is self perpetuating in this cycle of like environmental destruction and and all the impacts um, on resources that we see. It's it's it continues this process because you need to, it requires that you maximize profits, make things as cheaply as possible, the cheapest labor possible. Which I want to mention, like ninety three percent of the biggest fashion companies, you don't pay a living wage. I mean, slave labor. <laughs> Yeah, making these products, right? So it's really unsustainable, and there's really no way to change it within the capitalist system because of the 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 requirement of endless growth and endless maximizing of profits, and the you know using the cheapest materials. It's just not can never be sustainable environmentally. Um, so yeah, while awareness is shifting, it's just out of reach, you know, and out of our control really to change these companies' behavior. 
and, you know, one CEO may want to go green, but he'll be replaced by another who, who will, who will put the, you know, the, the profits of the shareholders first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, different things come up like, you know, we, a while back we had the adoption of, uh, you know, the fair trade stamp for certain commodities. Coffee in particular was, you know, very big about uh, stamping as fair trade. And there are these other sort of voluntary commitments that different industries undertake. I am not aware, actually, of, of even something at that level, which, of course, is really weak, right? Weak to non-existent sort of enforcement of any kind of standard. But uh, yeah, I wanted to ask about, you know, how how useful any of these sort of voluntary commitments to a certain standard, like a, a, a fair trade standard, how useful are any of those as, as actually, uh, you know, enforcing better environmental or labor conditions? And how useful are they, I think, uh, for what they really are, which is, uh, you know, PR stunting? Yeah, it- that's exactly what it is, PR stunting. Um, you know, it, it would be great if there was a fair trade stamp for fashion. But but like I said, I mean, the majority of the population are just living paycheck to paycheck and are going to buy what is affordable to them so they can still put food on the table for their families, right? Um, they're not going to be able to afford this fair trade things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there are, you know, there needs to be like direct government control over these industries to force them to use sustainable products and, and to make it, to subsidize it so it's affordable for, for people, right? I mean, we can use hemp, we can use bamboo, we can use, you know, organic cotton, linen, you know, things that are, use less water resources that are, that don't deplete soil, that don't put these synthetic products into our environment and microplastics and all these things. There are ways to make clothing that, you know, would last longer and have less of an impact on the environment. But without government regulation and control over these industries, they will always default to the cheapest way to make things. I want to ask, you know, as as an activist, right, as an activist who is trying to reach, you know, or ordinary people to get uh, support for the, the changes that you like to would like to see made in the world, you know, what do you make of there, it's so easy to do a sort of individual uh, name and shame, you know, oh, how dare you buy from H&M? How dare you do this other thing? How do you strike a balance between saying, you know, boycott, individual choice is not going to overturn any of these uh, institutions that we are talking about, is not going to undercut the, the fashion industry as it currently stands. But also, I guess that individual choice is not, absolutely meaningless in any kind of like philosophical or uh, I, I hate that I'm resorting to the word spiritual, but I can't find a I can't find a better one. How do you how do you strike a balance between um, trying to reach people where they are, not trying to shame people for, for choices that don't have an impact anyway, but, um, you know, helping people understand that certain choices can really empower them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it really speaks to, like, you know, building a grassroots movement and educating each other on the issues and the problems and, you know, and trying to, in in a general sense, like, all reduce our impact on the environment as best we can without shaming each other, right? And it's not, and also pointing out that the root cause of all these problems, all these environmental problems is the system of capitalism and that building a movement that really connects our struggles and you know, the, the concerns of our communities on a day-to-day basis and build, you know, building a movement that can really change the system we live under um, is, the, is the way to address these problems that, you know, our individual lifestyle choices, you know, 
how they may make us feel better. <laughs> and mm-hmm. small impacts on the local level, you know, really won't won't change the root cause of uh, specifically of climate change and just this massive environmental destruction that we're facing. Um, so really, yeah, talking to our in our communities, connecting with our neighbors, and really educating on the real solutions, and there are so many, and there are so promising, um, you know, can really go a long way to shifting things. Tina Landis, I am sure some of these solutions are in your book, and I know the last few times we've talked to you, you have been on a a speaking tour about that book. Are you still on that tour, and where can people find more of this work? Yeah, so folks can go to liberationnews.org to purchase the book and to find um, a posting about my national speaking tour that's still going on. Um, I'm doing three cities in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, in the this weekend and next weekend, and then I'll be in the Southeast doing uh, speaking in five different cities in October. So people can check out liberationnews.org for the specifics on those events. Tina Landis, thank you as always for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. John, we made it. I'm we here. actually, we, uh, <laughs> Randy was having such a good time in the studio. <laughs> we are not going to have time to go through any of these uh, headlines that I had collected to get into. I will say, I think we are going to talk about this tomorrow. Um, Alec Baldwin might be criminally prosecuted uh, for yeah. that rust shooting death. Of I, I'm uh, surprised by that. But, you know, when when you go back and look at his actions and his responses to some of the questions early on, I think that he believed from the beginning that he would be criminally prosecuted. Yeah. I mean, I want to say this is only, this is a, he might be, there are reports that uh, four prosecutors are looking to uh, bring cases against four individuals. We don't know who they are yet, but we are going to probably get into this in a little more detail tomorrow. We're going to have to leave it here for today. Thanks as always to all of our guests. Thanks to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.